we need love if there is going to be any reform within society. Not selfishness, not greed, not thirst for domineering, but love is the foundation and the cement of the Christian society. One who destroys the family is digging away the moral foundations on which society has been established as a moral institution. But one who exalts the family and outfits leadership with love rather than selfishness. Such a person does a work that pleases God. For God is love, and love is the law of his kingdom. That paragraph, friends, is the end of chapter 9 of Herman Boving's book, The Christian Family. Welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bob Thune, and I'm here with Pastor Dusty White. And uh, on Wednesdays, we sit down, usually with a couple other friends who aren't here today. Yeah, they left. Uh, to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. This is Third Wednesday Theology, and we've been working our way through Herman Bovink's work titled The Christian Family. And this week, we want to tackle Chapter 9, which is titled by Bovink, Family and Society. And uh, that quote you just heard is sort of how he ends the chapter and so we're going to summarize a little bit of his work and just take a couple jumping off points as a chance to talk theologically about the family and its implications. Before we get into the heart of our conversation about Bovink today, I want to read a response from a listener that I got this week. Dusty, I was like, yeah. you know what? That might be a fair point. I might need to own that a little bit. <laughs> listener Helen wrote in about episode 446, Does Dechurching Begin at Home? And she said, hey, in hindsight... This podcast was helpful. I can see some of this happening in our own home with one adult child who walks faithfully with the Lord and two who do not. But she observes, hey, the lighthearted laughing during the discussion of unsaved kids was not helpful. Yeah, that's fair. And that's a fair critique, Helen. I want to own that probably uh, we were maybe a little bit, because we were discussing a research study there were probably ways that I was a little bit flippant in how we had that conversation that yeah. I can, I appreciate that feedback. And so I can imagine listeners who have children who are currently not walking with the Lord and heard us talking about de-churching beginning at home and feeling like we were treating it like a, in a lighthearted way uh, is, is hard. So I want to own that and say, yeah, we probably were a little um, lighthearted in how we talked about that topic. And maybe we needed to be more grave and serious, especially for those who, are walking in that reality right now. And so thanks for that feedback. And I want to acknowledge that we uh, could have done better there. Yes, for sure. I agree with that. I, uh, there's nothing to laugh about when you've raised your kids in the church and then they're not walking with the Lord anymore. So yeah, I, I apologize for that as well. Yeah. So thanks for the feedback. Thanks for reaching out, Helen, and, and for, in a sense, rebuking us in a kind and loving way. Um, this is part of what we appreciate about listeners giving us feedback on it so that we can reflect on how we had certain conversations and say, yeah, our manner needed to change there. So appreciate the feedback. Um, if you're a, a newer listener, we do this feature on the third Wednesday of the month as an opportunity to just do some theology together. Uh, some listeners are reading along as we read this book. Even for those of you listeners who aren't reading along, what we try to do is just use it as an opportunity to take a text of theology and think about it, talk about it, apply it a little bit in ways that help us learn. And we've enjoyed learning from Herman Bovink, who is uh, outside of our own cultural context and outside of our own century. And so 
He's a helpful voice from the past to help us think about theology and its application to life. And in this chapter, so he titles the chapter Family and Society. Most of this book has been him working out like a a biblical theology of the family. This is a little more of a chapter that's like a philosophy of society. Yeah. Uh, It's almost like his philosophy of culture. And I'm going to try without belaboring some of these points to just bring you into the way he's reasoning about the connection between family and society. So essentially what he wants to assert is that when we think about what is a society, the the family provides sort of the the model for how a society takes shape. Because, you know, if we're working from a Christian worldview, we realize that human existence, the world, started with Adam and Eve in the garden and their children. And so Bavink wants to remind us that anytime we think about society, we're t- thinking about something that moves forward from the family, that we started with a first family and that's how we got society moving forward from there. Which is helpful because we tend to think about society and family as separate things. Right. And he does make some distinctions, but it's interesting that he sort of, uh, I want to read a section where he works out some words here. He says the word society is related to the French societe and the Latin societas, which itself is based on socius, which means companion. Hence, the word society has come to refer to a group of people living together in an ordered community. A society is formed when individuals who agree, sympathize, and cooperate with each other pursue general or special interests and therefore enjoy trustful concourse with one another. And he talks about how people use the word society to talk about like bees and ants. There's sort of a social, there's a social arrangement to how they function, which is really helpful to think like, oh yeah, this isn't just a human thing. Bees have a society. Ants have a society. They, yeah. they cooperate together for a purpose. And so he says, even in the animal world, you have this sort of idea of beings cooperating. And then, you know, in human society, we take that to a whole nother level because of human ingenuity. And so he talks about two kinds of societies, voluntary association and natural or organic society. So like, yeah, voluntary associations, he talks about, you know, the livestock association, the trade group, literary club, charity organizations, Etc. These are all ways that people sort of voluntarily associate together and create little societies. That's one way to think about the kind of societies we have. But also, the word is used to refer to the kind of group of people that arises naturally because of various life relationships. So here's some examples Bavink gives. He says, we might think of a group of people who live in a particular country and within a certain nation. So we speak, for example, of Greek society or Roman society or French or English society. Uh, We might speak of Eastern civilization or Muslim culture. These are all ways of referring to societies that aren't voluntary associations, but that just are an overflow of natural bonds that bring people together. One of the things I like most about Bavink is that he, he is always trying to work against individualism. And I think this is an important, when we think about biblical theology, especially as Westerners, we have to remember that the the society comes first and then the individual, not the other way around. So at the bottom of page 111, he writes, from conception onward, a human being is a product of fellowship. Every person is born from and in fellowship. Persons are cared for and nurtured in the context of fellowship and continue in some kind of fellowship throughout life all the way to one's 
final breath. A human being is a convivial creature. It's just helpful to remember that our individuality is actually the product of us existing in society, coming into the world in community and through a family. It's super helpful that he points that out because we, we're currently living in this moment that the society needs to let me be whatever right. individual I want to exactly. be. Exactly. And it's the society's aim. That's why the society exists. Yes. And if it's anything else, it shouldn't be happening. Yes. So he talks about three original forms of human community, family, state, and church. And he says that these three are instituted by God. Uh, it's interesting how far back he works. He basically says you have the family in Genesis 1, Adam and Eve. The church was instituted in principle in Genesis 3, when God gave the promise about the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. And the state was instituted in principle in Genesis 9, with the right that God bestowed upon mankind after the flood. So he sees the origins of family, church, and state very, very early in the biblical story. And he says these are God-given sort of forms of community. A society, however, requires not just sort of those basic forms of human community, but also uh, what he calls economic relationships, right? When, when people are trying to live together and sort of cooperate together toward greater good and exchange goods with one another and so forth. And so he would consider society to be something that has developed as human culture has developed. And it's not exactly the same thing as family, church, or state. He sees society as something a little fuller and a little broader and, and sort of downstream from those original institutions that God created. And in a sense, all of those entities are helping out one another within them. They're all assisting each other. Yeah. They're, um, in fact, the Catholics speak of subsidiarity. It's a doctrine that they use that just relates to the fact that like, yeah, multiply some families and put the gospel to center and you have a church. Uh, you know, families and churches uh, together have responsibilities, but then the state has a different set of responsibilities. So it's like there's these little platoons. You have the, the family and God gives it a certain kind of authority and responsibility. You have the church, God gives it a certain kind of authority and responsibility. And then you have the state or a political entity, governance, and God gives it a particular kind of authority and responsibility. And I think it is helpful for us to distinguish between those three and to see that they are different institutions which God has ordained that have a different kind of authority and responsibility commensurate with their function in the world. In the middle of this chapter, Dusty, there's a really robust theology of work. Yeah. He and just gets after it. Yeah. Bavink, um, as he's writing about society, he obviously wants to say one of the things that makes a society function is the reality that God created us to work. And so every listener listening to this podcast uh, is likely employed in some kind of work, whether that's paid work or whether it's domestic labor, whether it's a job you go to or, you know, you work out of your own home or whatever. I, and so I think it's important for Christians to reflect on how do we think about work from a biblical framework? And I want to read a few sentences from Bobbing here to set up his theology of work and how he wants us to think about our work. Here is what Bavink writes. This is pages 117 and following. I'm going to read a few sections. 
The first human beings received the mandate to cultivate and care for the garden in which they lived, to fill the earth, to subdue and rule over it. Dominion is inseparable from the image of God according to which people were created. Sin did introduce an immense change, but insofar as human beings still display the image of God, they also retain the calling and the power to subdue the earth. Work, then, is certainly made more difficult as a result of sin. Many languages use the same word for work and for difficulty or trouble, but work existed before the fall. It was included in being created in God's image, and it consisted in subjecting the earth in terms of what nowadays is referred to as culture. In its widest sense, Culture is nothing else than subjugating the earth, wielding and applying human knowledge and ability with respect to the world around us. The Reformed tradition, I'm not, not quoting Bavink anymore, <laughs> this is just my observation, but the Reformed tradition draws a tight connection between the cultural mandate of subdue the earth and the idea of human productivity, the cultures that we build. The, one, the way my seminary professor used to say it that I think I've mentioned on this podcast before is when God told Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it, he, in, he intended for them to split the atom. Like that, you know, yeah. he had in mind science and technology and all the, all the sort of human creativity and productivity that we have come to do over the course of human history. All of that is implied in that command to have dominion over the earth. It's, it's a command to work and to take the raw materials of what God has given and to be productive with them and benefit one another through them. Full confession, I am, I am rarely thinking about work being a good thing prior to Genesis 3. Like you reading that right now reminds me that work is a good thing and I do and I have the privilege of enjoying what I do. But I'm, since we have not known work outside of Genesis 3 experientially, I tend to forget that work was beautiful. Yeah. And he goes, he has this long section where he talks about the labor, the laboriousness of work or the, the fallenness of work. He says, this is page 128. What a monotonous boredom characterizes many a job. What objections and difficulties must be conquered day after day. What spiritual strength and effort are demanded to keep shouldering the burden to avoid sticking one's hands in his pockets from discouragement. And above all, what a cheerfulness of spirit is needed in order to move forward joyfully and gratefully as one should to create delight and joy in one's work. How many today complain as they work and view it merely as a means for earning money or simply as a means enabling them to enjoy life as much as possible later in the evening and at night on Sundays and holidays. Yeah. I, I sometimes call this an instrumental view of work where work is a means to an end. It's like, I got to go make money so I can yeah. enjoy life, provide for my family, pay my bills. So it's like the, you know, the work is the, the cursed toil that I have to do so I can come home in the evening <laughs> and enjoy a good meal. Yeah. But Bavik wants to remind us that that's not how the Bible sees work, that the, the work is an image of God thing. Yes, it's been complicated by the fall, but... Right after that, he and, and also yes, you might have a job that you don't fully enjoy. Yeah, it doesn't meet all of your needs, but it can still create a sense of joyful work. Well, I like how he talks about creating joy and delight in one's work. 
that he feels like that's part of our responsibility is to create joy in our work, not just expect it to be awesome. He writes, Christianity has taught us differently. Christ himself has sanctified work by his life and suffering. He has made us understand that work is a moral calling, a calling that comes to us from God and that must be fulfilled for his sake. The purpose of work is inherent neither in work itself, nor in pleasure, nor in wealth. All work, including the least and most simple, is once again a source of joy only when we see it as a divine calling that has been assigned to us as our task here on earth. So there you see him connecting the doctrine of the image of God with how you feel about your work on a Tuesday afternoon. He's like, you know what? The only thing that's going to help you see your work as meaningful is if you realize it's a divine calling, it's something given to you as part of being made in the image of God, and you have a responsibility then to go enjoy it as best you can and do it to the glory of God, as Colossians reminds us. And there's oftentimes that we, I mean, everybody in their work has certain stuff that they probably like or don't like, and we tend to think that we have the right to complain about the stuff we don't like. And instead, I think all of the last couple of minutes of this podcast, they're confronting me on just like certain busy seasons of the church or certain uncomfortable things that we just have to lead through or engage or whatever. Like, you know, maybe you haven't had a significant day off or whatever. Who cares? Like, enjoy it. It's for the glory of the Lord. Like, press in. Also, he talks about how family motivates work. This is a theological point Bavik makes, but it's also a sociological point in the sense that I've heard a lot of um, researchers talk about this. If you go study uh, the demographics, if you go do a, uh, you know, a, a measurement in society and basically say, uh, if you take the highest wage earners, what tends to be true of them? You, know, you would think like, well, it's the real driven people who like are single guys and they work on Wall Street or they're single women and they're giving their whole life to their careers and they're trying to make a million dollars. Actually, statistically, the highest wage earners are fathers with big families. You know why? Because they got to feed a lot of mouths. That's right. And there's something about having a family and having to provide for them that does spur us to work. And we talked about that a, a week or two ago on the podcast. And so he says, Bavik writes, through the family, God motivates us to work. Through labor, he equips us to survive, not for the sake of satisfying our lusts, but for the sake of providing for our family before God and with honor, and also to extend the hand of Christian compassion to the poor. So notice how he isn't just a nuclear family guy there. He's saying also part of our calling is to extend compassion to the poor. And the reason we work is to provide for our family's needs and to extend grace and generosity to the poor. It's interesting on page 124, based on what you just said about work, he He says, nowadays, people shift all the blame from themselves and assign it to the terrible organization of society. And anytime we don't like our work or work seems to be oppressing us, we quickly want to blame the society or the culture or the company. We're never really looking inward. Yeah, right. We're never looking at our attitude or or our approach to work. Yes, it's someone else's fault. And you see Bovink here really building out, I think, a healthy theology of work and and starting from this idea of being made in the image of God, then what he connects that to, and if you've been listening along on Third Wednesday Theology, you you won't be surprised by this. You've learned by now that Bavik is not a socialist. 
He's very suspicious of government attempts to sort of enforce some kind of mandatory equality across a society because he realizes that never works. Um, but he does point out that in the, the problem with thinking about a society, remember this chapter is about family and society. He's talking about the nature of what a society is and then the reality that work as human beings work together in a shared environment, that's part of what creates a society. But then he, he raises in this chapter the problem of inequality. He says, of course, there are numerous abuses in society that nobody wants to defend. But one must not forget that those abuses have hardly existed only in our current society alone, but in all times and places, and often much worse than now. One of the good apologetic things Bavink does is he always says, hey, let's make sure we keep in mind where else have these problems existed? Yeah. And he wants to point out the problem of abuses and the problems of inequality and poverty and such, those exist across all time and all places. And so it's really naive to blame them on one economic system or one cultural value. These things are pervasive. But he, he mentions, and remember, he's writing this book, at the beginning of the 20th century. So we're 40 years removed from the dawn of Marxism. We're before the Russian Revolution. For the rest of the 20th century, the biggest specter on the world stage is going to be Soviet communism and arguably also national socialism in Germany. But those two movements together are going to define most of the social unrest and political upheaval of the 20th century. And Bavink seems to anticipate that coming. He, he's writing as Marxism is sort of becoming more and more ballyhooed in society. And so he, he listen to what he raises related to inequality and then how he sees the solution that socialism is trying to apply and then how he disagrees with that solution and proposes a biblical one. He writes, the deepest, the deepest complaint against which conflict is being targeted is inequality, which exists everywhere. Political revolution, so people say, has made people equal before the state. And if that is not to remain an incomplete effort, it must be finished in terms of social revolution, which will make people socially equal. Inequality must be stopped. Inequality in status and inequality in property ownership. No more masters and servants, wives and maids, employers and employees, governments and subjects, for authority is presumptive despotism. Every organic moral relationship that has existed so far must be transformed into contractual relationship. All service must become a position with a function. Similarly, inequality in property may not continue. Each person has equal rights, and must receive as much as he deserves. In the future, people must no longer be able to be rich through a benefactor, through birth, or through inheritance, but rather wealth must be distributed equally. Every, every wage according to desert, or perhaps distribution according to need. So that's the basic framework of Marxism, is that what we need to do is distribute wealth equally across society, get rid of wealth that's based on inheritance or uh, birth or benefactor and spread everything equally across society. That was exactly the attempt that the, the communist revolution made yep. in Russia. Right. 
and in and that currently continues to exist in communist China. Here's what uh, Bavink writes: It requires no argument that the ideal of such a society cannot be realized in any other way than by dismantling the existing society down to its foundations and then rebuilding it according to the specifications that have been dreamt of for a new society. So he acknowledges the only way you can do this is through central planning, through like some heavy-handed, centralized government dismantling of what currently exists and then trying to rebuild it. And Bavink acknowledges that's oppressive. That's tyrannical to, by government control, erase everything that is and try to mandate it look differently. He writes this later on on the page. A society that is a genuine society, that is a complex organism of relationships and operations, cannot be anything but multiform. One who opposes the diversity of class and property in society, thereby opposes its organic composition, and must see to it that all organic moral relationships are replaced by artificial contractual relationships. And because the organization of society possesses its starting point and its stability in the family, the struggle against society ultimately leads to a struggle against the family, against the distinction and relationship of husband and wife, of parents and children, of those who are independent and those who are subservient. The health of the family is a gauge, if not of society's moral welfare or material welfare, then certainly of its spiritual and moral well-being. What what you hear him saying there is, that if we're going to redistribute wealth, if you're going to have a, a centralized bureaucracy as seen by socialism, Marxism, and communism, what's going to happen is you no longer have the organic life of society. You have now a contractual, artificial kind of society. Because, and he uses the word organic a lot because what he's saying is, man, people have different backgrounds and right. different levels of earning power and different starting points where they're coming from. That's just the nature of being a society. People are different. Yeah. And you can't make everyone the same artificially because that's not, I mean, think about the, the metaphor of organic and think about like the trees that grow in my yard. They're all different trees. They all look different. They all grow different. And he says, his point is human society is the same way. Yeah. It's going to be multi-form. And so I think it's interesting that he, in his critique of society, comes back to the family and says, the only way you can reorder a society artificially is if you if you reorder the family and if you tear down the sort of multiformity that exists within the family, that's exactly what you see happening today. The most progressive voices in society want to dismantle the nuclear family and make everybody Everything's free to flat. do whatever yeah. they want to do. They're, that they're, you know, the relationships of mother, father, husband, wife, children, that the, none of these things matter that you can just sort of pick and choose artificially how to construct a family and that there's no sort of givens there. And Bavik, I think, is seeing that 100 years ago and saying, hey, that's where this is all headed, and that's not a good way to do society. Yeah. And we would be wise, I think, to hear his critique there. Not that we live in a place probably where, you know, where communism marks him has as much sway as it might have in, in the Netherlands at the turn of the 20th century. But uh, those same voices are still alive today, and those same, those same philosophies get recycled and put back to us in all kinds of different ways.
It's interesting to think about what Bavink is saying here in light of what we've said before on in previous topics that freedom might implode upon itself. Yes. Because that's also kind of where he's headed here, what he seems to be saying. If you begin with the individual and not the family, then you're already be, you're, you're starting place is the wrong place. Yes. The final thing I want to mention here that um, Bavik keeps bringing us back to in this book in ways that are a little uncomfortable for many modern listeners and readers. And yet there is a wisdom in what he's doing. He comes back to the differences between men and women. And he says on page 127, by nature, the man has a different disposition, different needs and inclinations, and a different calling than the woman. No theory or law can erase this difference, which is grounded in creation. And the, the stereotypes he draws here are factually true by social science. Boving might take them in directions we that don't feel very 21st century to us because he talks a lot about the woman's sphere being the home and the man's sphere being like working outside the home. Right. That might sound like 1912 because it is. But what he, what he does not want to get away from is that in general, men form their relationships shoulder to shoulder. Yeah. By working in a common cause, this is why some of the deepest relationships that you find among your fathers and grandfathers' generation are: we we fought in Vietnam together, yeah. or yeah. you know, we worked at the same job together for forty years. It's just men tend to be shoulder to shoulder kinds of bonders, if you want to call it that. Whereas he points out that women tend to make their relationships face to face; they are more oriented toward the kinds of deep uh, familial relationships that create a family culture. And so he wants, he keeps coming back to that because to him, that's part of the important difference that, that we can't flatten, that there are actually differences in how men and women form relationships and sustain relationships. And so when you think about a husband and a wife, those two roles are not interchangeable and a family needs both. And men and women have different relational capacities and aptitudes and inclinations and Boving wants us to say, that's great. That's good. That's how God made us. Let's not pretend that we ought to flatten those or try to erase them. And I like when he brings us back to those sort of implicit, hardwired differences. This is one of those questions that people always disagree about. I was like, what's the difference between men and women? You could have a hundred conversations about that right. and learn a hundred different answers. But Boving wants to say there is something very deep and relational about how men and women tend to function in society and in relationships that does speak to the difference in how we're made. And then therefore in why both men and women together are needed to form a healthy family and why God, had, why God, when he built the family gave a husband and a wife, a father and a mother, because they're different. Going back to those three places of family, society, and church, all those distinctions are needed in all three of those spheres. Yes. And, you know, that's important for us in a, in a modern world that wants to obliterate those distinctions or flatten them. It's important that Christians unapologetically raise those distinctions and say, yeah, it's good that God has made us different, that there are two sexes and that they are wired differently and designed differently and that only in their complementarity and mutuality do we see the fullness of the image of God displayed. 
As we always say, the goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. And so if you are a Christian or a church leader in another context, uh, thanks for listening in. We pray that our conversations here might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. And uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.